Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here in 2 Peter, we are given a very profound truth. We can be partakers of the divine nature. Now, to be a partaker of the divine nature is, of course, not for us to become God. That can never be. The essence of deity cannot be participated in by the creature. Between the creature and the creator, there must ever be a gulf fixed with respect to essence. This truth is often referred to as the creator-creature distinction. But as the first man, Adam, was made in the image of God, so we, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, are in a diviner sense made in the image of the Most High and partakers of the divine nature. We are, by His grace, made like God. He is love, and in Him we become capable of divine love. He is truth, and in Him we become true, are made to know truth, and to love that which is true. He is good, and He makes us good, so that we become the pure in heart who will see God. Even more, we become partakers of the divine nature in a higher sense than this. In fact, in as lofty a sense as can be conceived, we become members of the, vo- the body of the divine person of Christ. The same blood which flows in the head also flows in the hands and feet. And the same life which quickens Christ quickens his people. It is as Paul proclaimed, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But as if that were not enough, we are also married to Christ. He has betrothed, betrothed us unto himself in righteousness and faithfulness. And as a wife is joined to her husband, he who is joined unto the Lord is of one spirit with him. This is a marvelous mystery. We look into it, but who can fully understand it? We are one with Jesus, so one with him that the branch is not more one with the vine than we are part of the Lord Jesus Christ. While we rejoice in this, let us remember that as partakers of the divine nature, we manifest this high and holy relationship in our interactions with others. We are to make it evident by our daily walk and conversations that we have indeed escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Yet often we have fallen short in this. All too often it is our old self that is manifested and not the new man created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so it is here in confession that we must go, that our unrighteousness may be cleansed and our true identity reclaimed. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. Our Father and our God, would you speak to us now through your Holy Spirit and the preaching of your word? Would you open our ears and open our hearts that we might receive 
the message that you have for us. We pray that it would not simply bounce off our foreheads, but that it would penetrate deep into our hearts to change us, to give us courage to obey, faith to believe, and diligence to walk in your ways. Father, would you quiet our hearts now from the distractions that we've brought with us from the past week, the ones we're importing from the week ahead. Give us peace. Focus our attention on Jesus Christ and his word that we might learn from him. Bless us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How should Christians live in an unbelieving world? That's the question that the book of 1 Peter attempts to answer, even though it's taken Peter until this point, in the middle of chapter 2, to lay the foundation for his answer. First, he's had to tell his hearers who they are in Christ, because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. So he calls them elect exiles in chapter 1, verse 1. Elect exiles who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's who they are. That's what Jesus has done for them. And so in something of a a recap, in verse 10, the verse right before the verses we read, he describes them using the words of Hosea that began our service today. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in light of that, because you are now the people of God, how should you live? Because even though they're God's people, they're not yet in God's place. That's what it means to be an exile, and it's not so much talking about geography. Everything changed when the gospel went global. God does not have one place like he used to in Jerusalem. Now the whole world belongs to Jesus. So it's not so much place as A social reality, a cultural reality. We're not at home here. The culture around us, people around us don't think the way we think. They don't believe what we believe. And they don't live the way we live. So in that situation, under those circumstances, what are we supposed to do? So that's what Peter is giving an answer to here. Because as elect exiles... They're chosen by God. They're familiar to God. But as elect exiles, they're alienated from their neighbors, from the world around them. And for us as American Christians, 1 Peter is becoming more and more relevant, more real, as we receive new reminders every day that we're not at home here. We're strange. The things that we believe are weird, and sometimes the people around us even think what we believe and how we live, they think that that's not just odd, but evil. It's wrong, the way we live, the way husbands relate to wives and wives to husbands, the way we raise and treat our children, the way we think about and treat those around us. Sometimes it's even spoken of as evil by people around us. And so for this group of Christians way out in Asia Minor, cut off from maybe the centers of Christian faith and belief, they're asking this question, how do we live as Christians? What do we do? 
They don't like us. <laughs> they don't welcome us. We're different. Help. And so Peter's writing to give that help. And his, his lesson for them and his lesson for us is this reminder that even though exile is painful, exile is not a curse. It's a calling. It's not an accident that's happened to you. It's something that God has called you to. He chose you for this. So the main point of Peter's message is not, here's how you can end your exile. Here's how you can fix this exile problem. No, he's telling you how to live as an exile, not how to end your exile. That's what he's going to say. And so verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 are the, the summarized version. He's opening a section in this book that will run for the next two chapters from 2.11 to 4.11, answering this question, how do we live in an unbelieving world when we're surrounded by unbelief and even hostility to our faith? And so the heart of Peter's answer is this, abstain from the passions of the flesh, from carnal desires that assault your soul, that attack your life with God, and instead maintain honorable conduct in the sight of unbelievers. Don't take your orders from the flesh. Do good instead. Even though you're in unbelieving territory, don't live like an unbeliever. Live a different life. But at the same time, you need to live a life that unbelievers can recognize as something good. They need to be able to tell that your life is good, even though their initial reaction when they hear about you, when they watch you, when they listen to the things you believe, their initial reaction is, oh, that's evil, that's wrong, that's strange. Peter says, live in such a way that then they learn, oh, no, actually it's good. It's beautiful. It's not at all what I thought. That's how God wants you to live, and so my two-word summary of Peter's two-verse summary is visible holiness. Surrounded by unbelievers, live visibly holy lives. Good conduct that other people can see. And by saying this, Peter's slamming the door on two other ways of life that might seem to be easier paths for Christians. Another way to live that wouldn't be so hard or so painful. First, conforming. Or, or blending in. We could call it uh, visible unholiness. Not bothering to maintain a distinctive lifestyle, but just living the same way as everybody else lives. That way the persecution stops. <laughs> that way they don't think you're so strange. That way they don't mock you and slander you and take advantage of you. And so it's a tempting opportunity, but it's one that Peter says, no, that's not how Christians live. You need to be holy. You can't adjust your life down to the level of those around you. That's not an option. Well, there's another option. We could retreat. We could hide out. We could pull back. And we might call this one invisible holiness. <laughs> Where we just cut off contact with the world. We keep it to a bare minimum. They don't like us. We don't like them. Let's just us be over here and them be over there. And we don't have this problem of persecution and friction and suffering. But Peter says, no, you cannot be like them, but you cannot leave them 
You cannot join them. But you, may, but you must be among them in their midst. He wants you to live right in the middle of unbelievers, even though you don't live the way unbelievers do. He wants you to be distinct, but not distant. You need to be holy in order to honor and follow Jesus Christ. But you also need to be visible so that the witness of Jesus Christ can be a light in a dark world. And so when we accept that, when we believe that and get that, it's still too easy for us to think that as long as we're not Amish, or as long as we're not completely pagan, then we're fine. As long as we've avoided those crazy extremes, then we must be right in the middle where God wants us. But it's not an on-off switch. (laughs) Either it's on or either it's off. It's, It's more of a dimmer switch. There are pressures and temptations that come. You don't throw just a setting for your family when all of a sudden you're there. Now these temptations to conform or to retreat keep sneaking in in unexpected places. And so there needs to be this, this vigilance, this examining of your heart and of your life. Are we holy? And are we visible? Are we making any kind of impact on those around us? Do they see that we're living differently, and do they see that it's good? These are questions we constantly need to be asking, because you don't have to live alone on your self-sustaining farm out in the boonies in order to retreat. And you don't have to wake up one morning with a new tattoo that says worldly right across your forehead in order to conform. It's more subtle than that. It can be as simple as just a blanket rule that you think will make you holy. Okay, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. That's how I'm going to protect my holiness, protect my family's holiness. I'll never listen to any secular music. I'll never watch uh, an R-rated movie. I'll never go to a place that serves alcohol. These are attitudes and beliefs that Christians have tried, that Christians have encouraged other Christians to follow in order to be holy. I'll never participate in in secular events. We need to make a Christian version of whatever it is we want to do. Christian sports teams. We need Christian candidates to vote for. We need to have Christian jazzercise. Whatever it is, there's got to be a Christian version so we can stay holy. That's the impulse to retreat. And we need to watch out for it. But of course, it can also be deceptive as the reverse. (laughs) Okay, we don't want to retreat, so we need to be visible, so let's go participate in everything that our neighbors are doing. I'll listen to any music the world puts out there. I'll watch anything, any movie, any TV show that they throw up there, because I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to retreat. I don't want to be seen as weird and different, so I'll just jump into everything. No, that's too simple an answer as well. That's the impulse to conform. And we also need to push back in that direction. So you can't retreat and go home. And you can't conform and make this world your home. You're in exile. You need to stay in exile because that's what God has called you to. One day, the day of visitation here in verse 12, that day is coming when you will be home. When you can rest. 
when you can stop this constant asking these questions, am I holy enough, am I visible enough, it's difficult, it's work, it's hard, and it's exhausting. And one day, it'll be done, we will be home, but we're not there yet. And until that day comes, we press on with this struggle. Why? Why does God want this for us? Why doesn't he just either convert everybody around us or take us to be with him in heaven? That would be so much easier. It'd be much less work, much less pain, much less struggle. Because this is the kind of thing that can tear a family apart. When some of you believe and some of you don't. And you're forced to be different from your own family at times. And it's a choice that God has made. And so it's helpful when Peter gives us three reasons why. That help to explain why are we doing this? What's your purpose, God? We don't know his full purposes, but we do know some of them. Because Peter explains. He gives three connected reasons. They link together. But they could be considered individually as well. So why does God call you to live a life of visible holiness as exiles, as sojourners? Well, the first thing he says, as, as visible holiness, abstaining from fleshly passions, protects your soul. Live this way for the sake of your soul. If you don't live this way, you will spiritually die. So he is protecting you through visible holiness. Second, as, as visible holiness, ac- accenting that visible part, keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles counteracts the slander that they bring against you. When they speak against you as evildoers, they run up against the example of your good and holy life. And everybody can see, no, that doesn't make sense. Have you heard about those weird Christians? They're so strange. The husbands lay down their lives for their wives. Isn't that evil? Actually, that sounds kind of good. The wives submit to their husbands and the home becomes a peaceful place. Have you ever heard of such a thing? No, it sounds weird, but it doesn't sound that bad. The kids are, enjoy being with their parents as a family. They, they're respectful. It's hard for the unbelieving world to continually describe that as evil <laughs> and to have people believe it. They're so evil that they love each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the right kind of evil to be, speaking facetiously, of course. The third thing, the glory of God. Since you've survived this war against your soul, and since your life has served as a witness to the transforming power of Jesus, God is glorified because you live this way. Because as an exile, you endure. You press on to live a visibly holy life. Unbelievers around you are changed by and through your witness. You speak the gospel to them, yes, but then you back it up through a visibly holy life. Especially in your response to slander. In your response to how they treat you. If at that point you don't give in to fleshly passions. They're seeing the power of the gospel. They're seeing the character of Jesus Christ at work. And that does something to them. That changes them. 
So one minute ago, they were calling you evildoers. But then by the end of verse 12, they're glorifying God because of what they saw in you. To transform an unbeliever from a mocker to a worshiper is a powerful effect of a visibly holy life. That's what God's called you to. That's why he doesn't give you an easy out. That's why he doesn't let you just relax, zap you up to heaven, or make everything around you perfect and easy and comfortable. No, he's not only doing something to you in the gospel, he's doing something through you for the sake of the world. So when Peter urges believers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, his reason's simple. Those passions attack your soul. A passion of the flesh, though, isn't describing any desire that you might have that's caused by your body. Hunger, thirst, need for sleep, sexual desires, those are, those are good. That's not what a passion of the flesh is. A passion of the flesh is when one of those desires has no breaks. There's no Holy Spirit to say, that's enough. When desire turns into lust, it's become a passion of the flesh. When a recognition of an injustice that's committed to you or against you blows up into sinful anger, that's a passion of the flesh. And Peter says, resist that. Push back against that. Do not participate in the passion of the flesh. Yes, you'll still have desires. You're human. You have bodies that have needs. You have an emotional life. You have reactions. But they need to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. The world around you doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And so they give in to these passions of the flesh, and that's what normal life is like to them. But you need to be different and push back against these passions. It's critically important for Peter, because if a little bit of persecution comes against you and it causes you to to lose your religion, to use that old phrase for getting angry, and you've lost your ability to witness. <laughs> you stopped looking like Jesus, who when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. When he was persecuted, he didn't open his mouth. If you do, if they curse you out and you curse them right back, well then, you've stopped looking like Jesus. And the world can't see Jesus in you, which means the purpose for which God made you an exile and called you to visible holiness is not realized. And so Peter says, pursue this holiness. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Second, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they can see your good deeds. A couple things to notice here. Your conduct among the Gentiles. You need to be among Gentiles in order to obey this verse. If your life is completely hidden, if you're just living in your own bubble, if you're retreating, you can't carry this verse out because you need to be among the Gentiles. Second thing, when they speak against you, not if, when. Remember, Jesus told us this was coming. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So this shock and surprise and indignation on our part when we're persecuted, that's a bad look for us. That means we either forgot what Jesus said or we didn't believe it. And neither of those are a Christian response to what 
Jesus said. Third thing, they may see your good deeds. Again, because you're among them, your deeds are visible. There's something they can watch and observe. Yes, we're called to use our words to speak the gospel to unbelievers. Absolutely, but our lives need to match what our words say. We need to be visibly holy, not just audibly holy. In fact, that's one of the things that the world hates the most, is when Christians speak truth and goodness and beauty and then live of ugliness and bitterness and anger. They can smell that hypocrisy and they hate it. And so Peter says, live not only verbal holy lives, but visually holy lives as well. If all of your good deeds are are in-house, if you only ever bless your family or your church, or if you're only ever doing the kind of good deeds that only Christians appreciate, reading your Bible a lot doesn't really impress the pagans. They don't care. The fact that you pray a lot, the fact that you support your church, well, they don't even think your church should exist. So they don't care how much you give to your church or the good that your church tries to do. So it needs to be visible, and it needs to be the kind of good deed that even an unbeliever can see and recognize, oh, that's, that's good. I appreciate that. I see something good in that. Now, they can't ever be the standard, because their idea of what's good and what's evil is messed up. But even a broken clock is right twice a day. Sometimes they get it right, and we agree, God agrees, they agree with God that this is good. For a husband to love his wife, that's good. To stay married, that's good. To love and care for your children, that's good. And the unbelieving world can recognize that. They might think the way you did it was pretty weird. But the fact that you did it, they recognize that. And they see that it's good. But if our our good deeds are invisible or special Christianized good deeds that the world can't recognize, then they'll have no counter-evidence to their claim that you are a bigoted, homophobic, un-American, woman-oppressing, child-brainwashing evildoer. That's what they think of you. And if your life never tells them different, they're never going to think any differently. And so God says, live visibly holy lives that show that they're wrong when they say that about you. And again, to connect this point with the last one, if when you're persecuted, you respond in that fleshly anger or bitterness, if when you realize that's what they think about me, you respond in kind, then you're not correcting their impression of Christians. You're confirming it. When they call you these names, your response will either earn you those names or show to them that, no, you're not that way. And that's what Peter calls you to do. Because visible holiness shuts the mouths of unbelievers. They might think it's crazy or evil for a husband to lead, for a wife to submit, or for you to give your children a Christian education, or for Christians to hold the line on on biblical sexual morality. But when they stop and think about it, when they really look at your life, 
They notice that Christians are good citizens. Christians are honest workers. Christian homes are are peaceful places. Christian marriages last. Christian kids have good character as well as good grades. And when Christians are mistreated, they act like Jesus and return good for evil. And so here's just a recent example. Our, Our culture has declared uh, the restaurant chain Chick-fil-A to be evil because of a stand they took, their Christian owners took, about marriage. So it's a restaurant that sells chicken. That doesn't sound particularly evil. But yet this slander gets thrown up in their face. But a couple of months ago, there was a horrible shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. And when that happened, on a Sunday, when Chick-fil-A is not even open, the workers at the Chick-fil-A went and fired up the grills and brought food to all those who were injured, those who were helping, those who were responding. In the face of evil and slander, they chose to bless. If you Google some of the articles that were written, it was mostly confusion. But a little bit of reconsidering by the world. Mostly, wait a minute, we know they're evil, but this doesn't seem very evil. I'm confused. But some of them, who we pray the eyes are starting to open by the Spirit of God, started to think, maybe I was wrong in what I thought about who they were. It's hard with a straight face to say things like, you're so wicked and hateful that you spend your time and your money in acts of mercy and compassion. That's a hard sentence to say with a straight face. And Peter says, force that problem on them. (laughs) Make them say things like that through your holiness. Well, third, not only should you be visibly holy for the sake of your own soul, And for the sake of silencing the mouths of unbelievers, but also for the sake of the glory of God. The result of your obvious goodness is that instead of slandering Christians, unbelievers glorify God. Unbelievers will trace the goodness that they see in your lives back to the source. They'll realize what makes you different from them is the God that you worship. And that will move them to glorify God. Maybe not initially as believers, but at least they'll be able to say, as we saw throughout the Old Testament, this is what happens when when Solomon builds this glorious temple, when God has blessed Israel so much, the other nations come and they say, God is doing something here. We may not worship that God, but we can tell that this God is doing something amazing with these people. And that is something that God uses to turn some hearts. And we pray that that happens as well. But at the very least, their mouths are stopped from slander and they start to give glory to God. So it's possible that they'll start glorifying God right now in the short term. But what Peter has primarily in mind is this day of visitation. The day when Christ returns. The day when God comes in judgment. The reason is because that's the day that your life makes sense to unbelievers. When Christ appears 
coming on the clouds of heaven in great glory, surrounded by these trumpet blasts, they realize the way I lived my life was wrong. (laughs) By not worshiping that God, by not following that God, I've messed up. I was supposed to be different. I was supposed to live differently. But when they see the glory of Jesus, they're going to think back on their lives and say, wait a minute. I knew some people kind of like that. I thought they were so strange at the time, but evidently, (laughs) they knew that Jesus was coming. And so they lived differently. Wow, I need to reevaluate how I saw them. Wow, we, we were really hard on them. We persecuted them. We mistreated them. But they didn't attack us back. They kept on serving and loving and blessing us. That's amazing. Glory to their God, who we pray and hope will soon be the God of the unbeliever as well. Because you showed them Jesus through your visible holiness, your good deeds, they're moved from mockery to worship. And it happens for some of them right now. But it will happen to everyone on that day of visitation when Jesus comes. But needless to say, if you've blended your life in so that you can't be distinguished from the world, then you don't have any holiness for them to praise. There isn't any reason for them to glorify God. Because you live just the same way as they did. And if your life is invisible to them, they won't know to praise God for what he did in you. They've never heard of you. They've never seen Jesus in you. And so this praise and this glory that God desires will never happen without our visibly holy lives. But a life of visible holiness is something that only God can do. It's the result of a transformed life. Someone who's been changed by an encounter with Jesus, by believing in the gospel. And the result of that encounter is a changed and transformed life that brings glory to God, not only from your lips when you're changed, but from the people around you who observe the change in your life. So when Jesus Christ appears and confirms that this visible holiness, that's the kind of life he created people for, then unbelievers who hate your way of life now will drop to their knees and glorify God on that day because of you. So that day is our hope. Right now we suffer. We receive this hatred and we do not respond in kind. We return good for evil, hoping for that great day to come. And so in light of that great day, because that day is coming, here's how God has called you to live. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not retreat from the world. God wants your holiness to be visible because it's a mighty weapon in the war against fleshly lusts. It's a powerful answer to the slander of unbelievers. And it's a great cause for giving glory to God when Jesus Christ appears. And so, beloved, that warm word that Peter uses that's so encouraging when the world calls you strange and evil and exile, Peter, speaking for God, calls you beloved. So, beloved, I urge you, walk in holiness so that everyone might see Jesus in the visible witness of his church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, this is who we desire to be. Would you strengthen our hands? Would you strengthen our hearts, renew our commitment to living in this way? Father, would you open our eyes to those areas that we are tempted to conform to the world, where our lives have become worldly because of this constant pressure to conform? May instead we conform to your word, to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, would you open our eyes to those areas that we have retreated where we have pulled back and chosen to play it safe. And by doing so, we've become invisible and hidden your glory from the world. So, Father, convict us of these things and instead fill our hearts with the hope of that great day when Jesus comes again to vindicate this strange way of life and to win glory for himself in the sight of all. Father, give us patience. Give us strength as we wait. Help us to not return evil for evil, but to follow Jesus and to bless when we are cursed. Lord, we cannot do this without the aid of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for that help, that your Spirit would use this word that we've heard to change us and shape us after the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray as we offer back to you the words that he taught us. Luke 22, 19 says, When Jesus had taken bread and given thanks, he broke and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. I'm going to focus on those last few words there. This is my body, which is given for you. Worship, of which this meal is the culmination, is the Lord's service. It's his giving of himself to us. It's not primarily our service to God. It is the first and foremost It is his service to us. The triune God is the God of gifts. He is a community of giving in himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit join in mutual loving service to us. We exist because God is a gift of gifts, the God of gifts. He gave himself and created uh, all things at creation, and he gave himself at the cross. And liturgy shapes our lives. We don't have the liturgy we have because it in and of itself is particularly aesthetically pleasing or just because it's traditional. Liturgy is not an inert or inert form or form or structure that needs to be brought to life. Liturgy is the form of God's self-giving to us, as words are the form of his communication. Everything that is in our liturgy is God's work for us and in us. God's call, his absolution, his word his food, his blessing. All these things are done through God's servants and all of it's a service to us as he gives himself to us in word and in sacrament. Today he gives himself again so that we might become like him. So trust him. Receive his gifts. Humble yourselves to be served by the God of infinite humility. The one who comes today as he did in the flesh, not to be served, but to serve. And to this table are invited all who have been baptized, and all who are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. When we eat the bread and drink the wine together, we're acknowledging that we're sinners, 
without hope except for that sovereign mercy of God, and that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come, welcome to Christ's table. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.